Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Critics of the Bible often complain about its violent stories. How could the Bible be considered sacred, they ask, when it is full of so much cruelty and abuse? The answer, of course, is that it is human civilization that is overflowing with cruelty and violence, and the Bible holds this fact up to our face. Almost always, those who cringe at its stories are those who can't face the truth about themselves. But the Bible does more than present the reality of our ugliness. Its stories co-opt human cruelty, transforming it into something beautiful. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, verses 21 to 23. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 282 of the Bible as Literature podcast. One of the concepts, Richard, that's difficult for people to grasp is the way in which the scriptural God uses violence as a didactic tool. And I think the key to understanding this mechanism in scripture is to look at what Father Paul has said about the showdown between the writers of Scripture and Alexander the Great and the Seleucids, because you have this tyrant. I mean, you could say that it was Alexander the Great, but it's really the empire that he established. But you have this dominant force in the Near East, and you have no hope of overcoming it. And you have often violence committed against the local population. This violence creates fear, this violence immobilizes, this violence strips people of hope. And the novelty of Scripture is that it responded to this violence, the movement of Scripture responded to this violence with a teaching that presented a king who is mightier than all of the kings of the earth, and a king who claims all of the violence committed on the earth, even and perhaps especially by the kings that are oppressing his own people. So that suddenly, in the mind of the oppressed, when they see violence, they wouldn't become afraid of the oppressor, but they would praise the Lord and recognize that the Lord was on the move on their behalf. And the other dimension that's really critical is the element of judgment, Richard, because the Lord takes action and the Lord expresses himself with might, with violence in the biblical narrative, as an act of judgment against those who have transgressed his law. So if you are one of the oppressed, and you recognize in the violence of your oppressor the will of God, instead of responding with violence, you have to ask the question, 
am I under judgment for transgressing the law? And this is how God strips the oppressor of power and elevates the conscience of the oppressed. In the Old Testament, Father, this is what you see all the time. There's this reality of violence around them. As empires come and go through the land of Judah and of the tribes of Israel, violence is part of this. As the Israelites are trying to understand what's going on, the only way for them to understand this is through the eyes of Scripture, which allows them to see everything as the hand of God. This is a very important point, because every religion that is a national religion, or an individual religion, or a community religion, is dangerous, because it pits my city against your city, my empire against your empire, my people against your people. What God is doing is he's placing himself as the only enemy, because he claims to be the Lord and the King of all the peoples, all the cities, and all the empires. You and I, Father, have been talking a lot recently about the prophet Daniel and the book of Daniel, and how time is just measured not in hours or in years, but in empires. One empire comes, ding, another empire comes, ding, another empire comes, ding. It's just one thing after the next. The same thing goes over and over again, but there's one constant throughout it, which is the Lord and his teaching that there is an overarching idea, an overarching teaching, an overarching word that goes beyond all of these different nations. And in this passage in Matthew, we've seen up to this point, Jesus just sent out the apostles as ambassadors of that kingdom of that kingdom that surpasses all the other kingdoms. And Jesus knows that this is going to be met with the violence of human beings. The judgment then that's against these students, these disciples, is will they continue to teach? Last week we talked about how no matter what situation you're in, you are bound as a disciple to continue to teach. Whether you are approaching a town, whether you're leaving a town, whether you're received in peace or received in violence, you continue to preach. You don't force the kingdom onto others. This is not a kingdom of violence or of force in the way that it would force someone to become a citizen. But it continually offers this invitation to anyone who is worthy, who's worth the time to receive the teaching, as we talked about last week. So as the disciples go from town to town, they will be met with violence. But Jesus contextualizes this violence as that's the time that you do exactly what you did before there was violence, meaning you are to teach. So continue to teach, and the judgment against you is whether you stay faithful. And in this present passage we're going to talk about today, Father, there's a lot about faithfulness and betrayal. You stay true to this teaching and this teaching which introduces the kingdom to those who hear it. Now, what's interesting, Richard, about these scriptural mechanisms is that suffering and alienation and persecution are universal in human experience. There are people who experience alienation from their own families, who experience violence under the boot of an oppressor, who in practical terms may not deserve that persecution. And from the perspective of Scripture, 
if that's so, it will be revealed on the last day when the Lord comes in judgment, and their suffering will be elevated as a witness to God's teaching. But whether or not it's a witness or a judgment against you can't be discerned. That's why it's important to endure patiently so that on that day, God can decide whether or not what you've done has honored him or earned his wrath. And this first verse in today's passage parallels almost word for word a passage in Micah where God is most definitely talking about judgment because the rulers of Israel have not been faithful to his instruction. But here it's being presented to the disciples. And it fits the pattern of this chapter where we have the fly in the ointment of Judas's betrayal, but yet the implication of hope insofar as Jesus is sending these men out to teach. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. Now, before I comment on this, Rich, I just want to read the passage from Micah. This is Micah chapter 7, verse 6. For son dishonors father, daughter rises against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies are the men of his own household. Now, Matthew pushes it when he talks about children rising up against parents, even to put them to death. Now, within the narrative arc of the Gospel of Matthew and the New Testament generally, it's the classic story of how some accepted the gospel in a household and some didn't. And there are many, you know, legends in the lives of the saints and how they betrayed parents or they betrayed children. The one that comes to mind, Rich, is the story of St. Barbara, whose own father betrayed her. But the point is, whether or not it's a witness to the gospel or God's wrath against you for not being faithful to the gospel is to be decided. And if I could continue that passage, Father, I think that you're right on the money because the next verse is, Therefore I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. Now this sounds like self-righteousness and don't worry about me because I'm going to be stronger than you, my enemy. But if you read the next verse, Micah 7, 9, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he plead my cause and execute judgment for me. He will bring me forth to the light and I shall behold his righteousness. What the speaker is saying in Micah is what you have to say, O judge of this world, kingdom of this world, is irrelevant. I know I'm going to be judged. I know I'm not righteous, but it's not you who decides. It's my God and my Lord who decides. It's the teaching that I'm preaching that I'm bound to, not whatever law you claim to uphold yourself. There's a judgment that comes, but the judgment comes from the Lord. And so this is what gives the disciple license to continue to teach, to continue to preach, even when being hauled before the judges in the synagogues. The one who is a member of this kingdom who is a citizen of this kingdom, realizes that it's only this king, this king alone that they're bound to. And this goes back to the Sermon on the Mount here in Matthew, that 
whatever you do, there's a single judge of everything you do, and it is not a judge of this world. That's the question that the three youths and the prophet Daniel had to face when they stood before the king. Do we really believe that this king who is passing away has power, or is the power of life and death in the palm of the judge in the book of Daniel, which is the God of Daniel, the God of the three youths? And once you take that stand, then suddenly you realize that you don't have to fear the king. And that's the mechanism at work here. You don't have to fear Caesar, but I'll decide on that day whether you feared Caesar or you feared me. Your suffering is not the proof in the end. It's more than that, because you can suffer because of disobedience. That's the whole point in this parallel with Micah. You're walking this precarious line where only God can discern the value of the steps that you've taken. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. There are a couple of important words here, Richard. The first is the word name, which in Hebrew is Shem. It's the name of God's household. So if you are going to honor that name, a name that should be feared by those who recognize that it is this God who has power over Caesar. If you are truly faithful to that name and a son of that household, you have to endure in the very technical way that Paul talks about endurance in his epistles. And the word here is ipomeno, which means to endure under the pressure of the adversity the gospel puts on your shoulders as a servant of that kingdom, and you have to endure in this way until the end when God will vindicate you. So when we talk about salvation or being saved in Scripture, you have to contextualize it in the geopolitical reality of the Old Testament. In other words, you are not saved in some strange philosophical way. If you are in a city that is being bombarded and someone intercedes to stop the bombing, that is what Matthew means by being saved. Endure the pressure of the gospel through Caesar. Because remember, God is co-opting Caesar's abusiveness. He's co-opting the abusiveness of the leaders of the religious community in Jerusalem and saying to you that if you endure my judgment under pressure, in the end, I will vindicate you and I will rescue you. You have to endure the pressure that God is applying through these other forces to prove that you are faithful to this gospel. And that's how the disciples are being put to the test. And it's interesting about being hated of all these others, because another thing we've been talking about these days, Father, is that brave truth-telling that's necessary for our society to run correctly and to run in the way that it should be running. If someone is a true citizen of this kingdom and is a true disciple of this teaching, of course they're going to rub other powers, other authorities the wrong way. Because when you say, this is what I believe and this is what is actually true, this is an implicit, if not explicit, challenge to their authority and their correctness. And that's going to upset the people 
who have power, and those who have the most power are going to have the most to lose. Like Father Paul told us, rich people are essentially poor. Powerful people are essentially weak because they need more power. And when you come in and you challenge that authority, that power, that is when the most violent reaction happens, and that's when the most pressure is applied to the disciple, and that's when the disciple must endure in order to stay true to that teaching. That is why fear and understanding how the gospel uses fear is essential for the teaching of the cross, because the things that you fear control you. If you're afraid of losing your power, you are the slave of your own power, and three teenagers standing in your court simply refusing to obey you are the most dangerous thing alive to you. That's the genius of Scripture. And the other important point that we didn't touch on earlier, Richard, is that when this judgment, the co-opting of Caesar's abuse for the gospel, elevates the conscience of the oppressed, there is the possibility and the hope. And this is captured so beautifully in Dr. King's teaching of nonviolence. There is the possibility and the hope that the oppressor would see the wisdom of God at work through you and submit and embrace you as a brother. That is the high hope of the Gospel of Matthew. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. You are homeless. Call no earthly city your home. You have no place that you can stay. You have no abode that you can claim, no nation that belongs to you. You are citizens of the coming kingdom. And it's important, as always, to emphasize that that kingdom is ahead of us. It's not here yet, because that keeps us homeless in the present moment when we stand before the tyrant in the name of Jesus Christ. The listener has to be very careful not to take this verse out of context, because it sounds like if you're under persecution, run away. But when he says flee to another city, this is actually a continuation of what we had above. Because when you went to one city and they weren't worthy of the teaching, you went to another city. This is actually the same thing. If you're being persecuted in a city, they're not worth it. They're not worthy of the teaching. So you have to go to another city. The point is, no matter what is happening to you, you are still bound to go from town to town. You are still bound to teach as many people as you can. There is limited time and there's a lot of people to get to. And so if you're being persecuted, hightail it out of there and go teach in another town because you have to reach everybody. You have to get to all the towns of Israel if you're going to be obedient to this teaching because you have to reach everyone who should know, who should accept this. And that's your job. That's your only job, no matter what is happening. If you do it faithfully, as you said, Richard, you won't have much time to stay put. There's too much work to do. Before I wrap today's episode, Richard, I just want to mention to our listeners that we have published a sermon that I delivered at the funeral of Daniel Del Castillo, a Foreign Service Officer of the United States. The full text is published on our blog, ephesusschool.org. And if possible, if time allows this week, I'll try to make the effort to record it. It wasn't recorded at the service for Daniel, 
but it's so important to us because of the work we do here on the podcast to share this teaching as a remembrance for Daniel, but more importantly, as a proclamation to all of the coming kingdom contained here, even in just these few verses on today's show. So make sure to check out our blog and read the sermon. And hopefully, if time allows, I'll release an audio recording on the program. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.